Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. I appreciate you being here. Uh, Grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew 27. We'll be in, in chapter 27, and then we'll be in chapter 28 in just a second, all right? If you'd like to follow along on the screens, you can do that. If you'd rather use your own device or your own printed Bible, we're happy for you to do that as well. Matthew 27, we'll start in verse 62. It says the next day, it's the day after the crucifixion, on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, sir, we remember what that deceiver once said. The deceiver they're referring to is Jesus. We, we remember what he said while he was still alive, that after three days I'll rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at the first. Pilate replied, take the guards and secure it as best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. Now we're going to hop over to chapter 28. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. What had happened was the resurrection. A meeting with the elders was called and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you have to say that Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and they said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews and they still tell it today. Today is as of the writing of the book of Matthew. Y'all bow your heads with me. Father, we just thank you for a chance to be in your house on your day celebrating your resurrection. Lord, it just doesn't get any better than this. And we thank you for the chance that we can do that freely and without any, without any concerns for our safety or anything else. Lord, we appreciate what we've been given. And Lord, we pray that we take full advantage of the opportunity to share your word and to share your gospel today. I pray, God, as we hear your word, that it would resonate with us in our spirits, that we recognize it as the truth. And Lord, that we wouldn't just hear it and believe it, but that we would do it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's one of the most well-known and oft-repeated sayings of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I bet you can finish the sentence for me. The truth shall set you free. Jesus, John, uh, John's gospel recorded those words of Jesus, and countless people have said it in a variety of contexts over the last 2,000 years. Here's my question for you today, though. If the truth sets you free, what does a lie do for you? If the truth sets you free, what's a lie do for you? And maybe a better question is, why would somebody lie to you in the first place? If the truth sets you free, 
and somebody chooses to lie to you, they are clearly trying to keep you bound, trying to keep you from the truth and from the freedom that truth provides for you. Somebody was lying in the passage we just read, right? Were y'all paying attention? They were not only lying, they were making up a lie. They were intentionally trying to deceive somebody, lying about what happened after Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus hadn't even been in the grave for 24 hours. They were already meeting, trying to fabricate a story to hide the truth. And once their greatest fear came true, and he actually rose from the grave as he told them he would, they went to a lot of trouble and a lot of expense to make sure that the lie they created was told and spread far and wide. Why would they do that? Because the truth especially the truth about the life and burial and resurrection of Jesus will set you free. So today I want us to find out what really happened on Easter. So today's message is called the reality, the reality of Easter. Now what's the best way to find out what really happened? Well you talk to the people who were there. Right, You talk to the people who were closest to those who were involved. And for our purposes, that's the apostles. That's the 12 disciples. Those guys were with Jesus from the beginning. They saw everything. They had connected their identities with him. They connected their reputations with him. They connected their futures to Jesus. If there was a cover-up, if there was something afoot, they were the ones who would have organized it and executed it. These were the guys at the center of of this mystery, so to speak. But here's what history tells us about these 12. 11 of those 12 men were executed for their faith. They were given the chance to recant their story. They were offered their freedom if they would only confess that it had all been a hoax. But every last one of these men died a horrifying and painful death, praising the name of the risen Jesus with their dying breath. And you may be curious to know what happened to number 12 of the 12 guys. Well, John was the only one of the 12 who was not martyred for his faith. But it's not because they didn't try. They boiled him in oil. (laughs) He just wouldn't die. He wouldn't die because Jesus didn't want him to die. Preserved his life. They didn't know what to do with a man who wouldn't die, so they stuck him on an island by himself in exile. But I promise you, Jesus, uh, John, the apostle, suffered as much for his faith as the other 11 guys did. But they never, not one of the 12 who were at the center of this thing, ever recanted. That tells me that what they were telling was the truth. That tells me that their testimony is reliable and the New Testament is a record of their testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. I'll tell you this, if my body's being tortured and death is a sure thing, I'm not going to endure any of that to protect what I know to be a lie if confessing the truth would bring me immediate relief. They knew what really happened, and they held to their profession of faith all the way to the end. Now, Peter 
has a great summary of what really happened in Acts chapter 2, and that's where we're going to settle for the rest of our time together today. He was in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, uh, and it was less than two months since Jesus had been crucified. He was preaching to thousands of people on the streets of Jerusalem that had gathered for another one of the religious feasts. These people knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew exactly what his ministry had been about. They knew exactly who he had claimed to be. And I want you to look at what the Apostle Peter told them in this message. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter looked at them and said, People of Israel, listen, God in publicly endorsed Jesus, the Nazarene, that just means he was from the city of Nazareth, by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. That's pretty plain, right? Jesus, uh, Peter rarely won any awards for his charming personality. He, t- he tended to just get to the truth of the matter. What really happened on Easter? First of all, Jesus really loves us. Jesus really loves us. Peter told them, and this is the, this is the thing that really jumped out to me about this passage. G- Peter told them, What had happened to Jesus had been the plan all along. He said it was a pre-arranged plan. Well, what was the plan? Well, Philippians describes what the plan was. In verse 7, it says this. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the position, the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. The plan was that Jesus would come to earth as a human, experience life as a human, be tempted with sin just like we are as a human, and endure the most, uh, the most unimaginable pain that a human could experience, at the, that he could experience the torture of Roman justice as a human when he died on a Roman cross. And the pain that he experienced would provide healing for us. The stripes that he received on his back was for the healing of the nations. The blood that he shed would pay for our sins. The shame that he endured would, would allow us to be accepted back into the family. The torture that he endured bought freedom for us. The death that he experienced purchased life for us. That was the plan. That was the horrible, brutal, inconceivable plan, and Jesus was in on it from the beginning. As a matter of fact, he volunteered for it. It, He was the only one who was qualified to carry it out. It had to be him, but listen, make no mistake about it, he didn't have to do it. He didn't have to do it. So why did he do it? The only thing that will make this book make any sense is love. It's love. 
It's the only thing that makes the gospel make any sense. Jesus really loves us. John 3.16, maybe the most famous and, and memorized passage of scripture uh, in all the world, says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 says God loved the world that he gave Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. And Jesus so loved the world that he was willing to do it. Y'all, don't miss this. He was in on it from the beginning. It's not like he showed up as a baby in a manger and a few decades later he got surprised about the will of God for his life. He knew it from the start. His love made this brutal plan beautiful. His, his love made this horrible plan heavenly. His love changed this, this plan of inconceivable pain into a plan of inconceivable salvation. It was his love. And the reason we're still talking about it 2,000 years later is that it's still his sacrifice that's accomplishing its purpose today. It's still working. The plan still works. It's still the plan, and it's still the only plan that will bring any of us into right relationship with God. Let me show you what Jesus said. In John chapter 14, Jesus told him, I am the way, not a way, not one of many ways. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. We can't be made right with God on our own. We need somebody to make the way. We need somebody to be the sacrifice. We need somebody to pay the debt for sin. And that's what Jesus did. That was the plan all along. And nothing makes sense. No other motive makes sense except for the fact that Jesus really loves us. When you think of the other motives that could have driven him to the cross. It wasn't the jealousy of the Jewish power structure. He said in John 10, he said, nobody can take my life away from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. You can't make me do this. I'm doing it because I want to do it. It wasn't the authority of the Roman Empire, which ruled most of the known world at the time, as a matter of fact, Jesus standing flat-footed, eyeball to eyeball with Pontius Pilate, Rome's representative in that part of the world, looked at him in John 19. He said, you don't have any power over me except what I give you. <laughs> this was the plan from the beginning. And there is no earthly reason that it was carried out. It was carried out. Because of a heavenly love. And not just love for those people who lived 2,000 years ago. He did it because he loves you. Because he loves me. Because he loves everybody in this room today. Everybody watching online. Everybody listening to the podcast. Every person who's, who's drawing breath on this earth. He did it because he loves all of us. What really happened on Easter? Jesus really loves us. And his love still gives us life. 
What else did Peter tell us about what really happened on Easter? Not only did Jesus, does Jesus really love us, but Jesus really died. He really died. Now, this, this is what I mean by that. Peter was very specific in verse 23. He said, you nailed him to the cross, and he died. Remember, it was the crowd uh, gathered for the Passover feast that he's preaching to. It was, sorry, the Pentecost feast that he's preaching to. But it was the crowd gathered just a couple of months ago at the Passover feast who had cried out, crucify him, right? And it was that political pressure that they put on Pontius Pilate that caused uh, Pilate to give him the, the execution, uh, the, the, the order of execution. Many of the same people who had cried, crucify him, two months ago, we're now still standing in that crowd listening to Peter preach. When Peter said, you killed him, it was true. The Roman soldiers may have driven the nails in his hands and in his feet, but it was this crowd who had put him to death. Now, why did Peter say they had killed him? Because they had to know the facts. Over the centuries since his death, and quite possibly in that very moment, even as Peter was preaching this message, people were doubting the death of Jesus in the first place. Some people claim that Jesus simply fainted on the cross because of the blood loss, and people mistook it for death, and they took him down from the cross prematurely. Some people claim that uh, the sour wine and the gall that they gave him or they offered him on the cross acted as a sedative and that he went unconscious. Some people claim that it wasn't a physical death in the first place, that it was all somehow just a poetic spiritual symbol that reflected a spiritual truth. Peter made the truth very clear on that day in this message. The death of Jesus wasn't a metaphorical story about a metaphorical death. Jesus was clinically, physically, actually dead. As a matter of fact, the person who wrote the account in the book of Acts and in the gospel of Luke was Luke, who by profession was a physician. If anybody knew anything about what death looks like and sounds like, it's a physician. If Luke the physician says that Jesus was dead, he was dead. It wasn't a metaphor. It was a medical fact. What happened, what really happened on Easter, what really happened is that Jesus really died. But why? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he even come in the first place? I know we said it's because he loved us, but why was it even necessary? Well, remember that the, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were created to live forever, right? What did God tell them would happen if they ate of the fruit that was forbidden them? They were going to die, right? They, death was never God's plan for us. Always life. Only life, as a matter of fact. He didn't intend for us to die. He intended us for, to live in his presence forever. Sin is what messed that up. Because of sin, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So in a very real sense, if Jesus hadn't died, we'd still be dead in those trespasses and sins. But Jesus volunteered to come to this earth. 
He was in on it from the beginning. And he volunteered to come as our Savior and as our Redeemer so he could restore humankind back to their original position with the Father. So here's what that looks like. Jesus was tempted to sin just like we are because Jesus had to conquer the power of sin over our lives. Without the shedding of blood, you heard, uh, you heard Darren say it this morning, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, there's no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus shed his blood because he had to conquer the penalty of sin. And, and Jesus had to die because he had to conquer the wages of sin. And the wages of sin is what? Death. You can't conquer something until you face it. So Jesus faced and conquered Every facet, every aspect of sin and death. A couple of weeks ago, I attended a funeral for a dear saint of God who was just a few days from her 94th birthday. There were, there were tears, a few tears around the room as family and friends grieved the fact that she was no longer going to be with them physically. But the overwhelming feeling in that room, and let me tell you, I have been to way more funerals than I than I wish I had. The overwhelming feeling in that room was hope. It was hope. And that's not always the case. What, what in the world gave them reason to hope? Well, see, they're, they're going to miss her. But there's this abiding and enduring hope that that wasn't going to be the last time they were going to be with her. They knew that they would see her again. How is that possible? Because death doesn't have the final say, right? Jesus conquered death. And so now we can say of ourselves what I proclaimed over her at the graveside. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, it says, Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thanks be unto God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? There's victory. There's hope because of Jesus. So what really happened? Listen, don't believe the critics. Don't believe the skeptics. Their conspiracy theories take way more faith to believe than the truth does. The truth is Jesus really died so he can give us victory over sin and over death. And it's been 2,000 years, but his death still gives us hope. Still gives us hope. What really happened on Easter? Acts chapter 2 Let's go back to that 23rd verse and then read the next one. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God, aren't you glad for some but gods in your life? Right, But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life for death could not keep him in its grip. Jesus really loves. Jesus really died. But the message of Easter is that Jesus really lives. He really lives. 
See, Peter makes sure that the people know Jesus didn't just face death. He beat it. He beat it. It, death could not hold on to him. I love this. It was this. It was this phrase that captured me in this passage that it could not keep him in its grip. Listen, it tried to hold on to him. It just couldn't keep him. Why? Well, what did Jesus say about himself? He said, I am the way. I am the truth. But he said, I am the life. Death couldn't hold Jesus because death can't hold on to life. Life always wins. And you know what? Life came first anyway. We give death too much credit. Life came first. Adam and Eve were created. Life was created. Only sin would bring death. And when Jesus paid the penalty penalty for and broke the power of sin, Death had to release its grip on him. There, the laws of God govern everything, and, and, and Jesus just had to look at death and say, I paid the price, man. You've got to let me go. You've got to let me go. Death has no legal right over Jesus because his blood washed away the sins. Sin left, so death had to leave. When we come to Jesus in repentance, and we trust him for the forgiveness of our sins, his blood washes away our sins too. And so death now, for the, for the follower of Jesus, death now has no legal right over us anymore either. Because Jesus lives, we also live. And it's in him that we live and we move and we have our being. Our life comes from staying connected to him. So even after we're saved, when we allow sin to drift back into our lives, we can still repent of those sins, go back to him, and and be forgiven of those sins, and have that life-giving relationship restored. Listen, these bodies that we're living in are eventually going to die. But not so death can win but so eternal life can begin. And that's a whole different thing, right? Our bodies will eventually be exchanged for the deathless bodies that God has waiting for us. Because Jesus really died and because he really lives, we can also live. That's where our hope comes from. No longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We're alive in Christ because he lives in us. The empty tomb is our symbol of life and hope. But listen, the fact that Jesus really lives is a deal breaker. It's it's what Jordan was talking about. It was a powerful testimony. His resurrection was a powerful testimony to those who had put him to death. They knew Jesus had died because they watched him die just a few weeks before. They knew that he'd been put in a tomb. Everybody in Jerusalem knew where he was. And don't forget, they were just a few steps from the tomb at that very moment. They could have gone and looked for themselves. If Jesus had not died, they would have ignored Peter's message and walked away. But they knew he died. If Jesus had not risen again, the authorities could have just produced his body and crushed this new religion. But the tomb was empty. 
Over and over again in scriptures, the apostles refer to themselves as witnesses to the resurrection. In their minds, the resurrection sealed the deal. It was proof positive that Jesus was who he said he was. And listen to me. If you go to Israel today, you can still go to the garden tomb just outside of Jerusalem and you can see for yourself that the tomb is still empty. Jesus is still alive. He has to be alive because he is life and because death has no more claim to him. Death can't hold on to him, so he is alive forevermore. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus are real and the reality that they created is still real for us today. It's, it is still all the proof that the word is, it's all the proof that we need that the word is true and that the salvation that Jesus lived and died and rose again to provide for us is still valid and still powerful as it ever was. We are still loved. We are still forgiven. We still have hope because of the reality of Easter. Amen? There's one last thing. And maybe the most important thing of all, it's in Acts chapter chapter 2, verse 33, and then we're going to jump to verse 36. Now he, Jesus, is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. Now let's look at verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Jesus really loves. He really died. He really lives. But don't miss this. Jesus is really God. He is really God. Jesus Christ was then and is now at the right hand of the Father, exalted to the highest place of honor because He is without a doubt, both Lord and Messiah. He lived a perfect life. He voluntarily died a criminal's death. He shed his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Not his, because he didn't have any. He faced death and hell and the grave, and he was raised back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no doubt in Peter's mind. And listen, less than two months ago, Peter was standing on those, in the same uh, city of Jerusalem denying that he had ever even heard of Jesus. And now there's no doubt in his mind and there should be no doubt in any of ours that the reality of Easter is that Jesus Christ is really God. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. Those three are one God. Without question, without rival, without equal, nobody like our God. I want to show it to you in two places. John chapter 1, verse 1. John 1, verse 1, and then in verse 14. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 said, and the Word became human, became flesh, and made his dwelling his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We've seen his glory, the glory 
of the Father's one and only Son. Jesus was in on the plan from the beginning. Not just because he was with God, but because he was God. And here's a passage we've already read. I left off the first verse, first part of it on purpose because I wanted you to see it all together right now. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. This time we're going to start in verse 6. Though he was God, Jesus was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to hold on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. You don't get divine privileges unless you are God. He took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. His sacrifice and volunteering for this prearranged plan was even more incredible when you understand that he was God, the creator. But he chose to become one of his own creation in order to save them. Listen, no other religion even suggests that kind of backwards proposition. Other religions will try to show you the path for a human to become divine. Only Jesus the divine chose to go backwards down the path to become human. But that's the reality of Easter. And that's why it's so important. So what happened when Peter preached this powerful message that day? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to show it to you. In that same chapter, now in verse 37, look what happened. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, because all 12 of them were standing there together, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, he said, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The knowledge of these things led them to an obvious question. They had heard all the things that Peter had said, and they said, well, what should we do? We're 2,000 years removed from the first time this message was preached, and it still leads us to the same question. Jesus really loves us. Jesus really died on that cross. He really lives again after being raised from the dead. And Jesus is really God. But now, ladies and gentlemen, the same question stands before us. What should we do about that knowledge? I'm, we're going to sing a song here in just a second. I'm going to ask the guys to come on and get ready. What do you do with that knowledge? The only reasonable thing to do is to do what Peter told them that day. Repent of your sins and turn to God so that you can be forgiven of your sin. So that, that you can have the power of sin broken over your life. So you can have the power of death broken over your life. So that you can be in right relationship with the God of the universe through his son Jesus. So that you can find purpose and meaning in your life by serving God and by loving the people around you. Listen, I'm glad you came to church on Easter. I'm glad that you chose to observe the resurrection. I'm glad and I hope that you're going to get a chance to spend some time today with family or friends. I'm, I'm glad that some of y'all got all dressed up because y'all look so cute. But the only appropriate response to the reality of Easter is to give your life to the one 
who did it all for you. So my question to you today is, will you surrender your life to Jesus today? Listen, believing a lie will keep you bound. But the truth, especially the truth about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus will set you free. My question to you today is, are you ready to be free? We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.